When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Good evening everybody and welcome. Thank you all very much for coming. My name's Hannah Kay and I'm the executive producer at Intelligence Squared. Now way back on referendum day, uh, which seems like sort of ancient history, Intelligence Squared were putting together the mailer for this event. And I remember tweaking the copy and helping choose the image and thinking... This is never going to see the light of day. What a waste of effort. Well, how wrong can you be? I woke up on Friday morning, looked at the news and thought, oh my God, what's happened? We must get the mailer out, which was actually easier said than done because half our team had gone off on holiday. Anyway, here we are, and it's a wonderful tribute to you, our loyal audience, that we actually sold 700 tickets for this event before we had posted a single speaker. But we have got a terrific lineup for you. Thank you all very much for coming at short notice. In particular, Josef Janning, sitting in the middle here, who's flown over from Germany, especially to take part in tonight's event. Now, you can follow the event live on Twitter using the hashtag IQ2Debate. And finally, as always, a very big thank you to our media partner, Vanity Fair, for their support for our programme. And now, please would you give a very warm welcome to our chair, He's Guardian columnist, author and broadcaster, Jonathan Friedland. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hannah. Thanks to all of you for being here. Sometimes uh, when I'm standing before you like this, I have to do a bit of a sell for why the subject is important and timely. have to make sure you think it's relevant. I don't think we have to do that tonight. Um, Journalists from around the world have been uh, in this country for the last week or so, and they have confidently declared this the biggest story uh, to come out of Britain since 1945, uh, the biggest, uh, most significant political event or even political crisis since the last war, and not many people have disagreed with that. Uh, Everything feels like it's in flux. Few would have bet uh, 10 days ago that the only party leader left standing would be one Tim Farron. (laughs) Who would have guessed that? Um, uh, I remind myself, of course, that Jeremy Corbyn is still standing. Um, But uh, So I should have corrected that. Um, And in fact, so fast is the news moving that it was in this very building that today the leader of the UK Independence Party, Nigel Farage, announced his resignation. Not for the first time, you may say. (laughs) This time we're told he really means it. 
uh, I will mention when we get to him later on that one of our panellists is, of course, UKIP's solitary member of parliament. Eloquently, he tweeted his reaction today <laughs> using no words but just an emoji of a smiling face. which he has just reenacted for you just now. Uh, and I'm told that 250,000 people have seen that tweet uh, today. So really, pictures speak much louder than words. Um, UKIP, of course, the party with only one member of parliament, but still managing a split. Uh, and um, <laughs> it's a great achievement. But the other party is following very, very closely, trying to keep up with UKIP in that department. So all the, po all the politics is in upheaval. Uh, every political party more or less engaged in some kind of leadership contest. As I said, the uh, octet of the Lib Dems, uh, the eight of them have managed to stay out of it. So that's what's been going on there in, in our economy. And uh, obviously we have uh, people on our panel, one man in particular, very well placed to talk to us about that. Huge economic uh, upheaval, the pound plunging to a level lower than at any time in the last 30 years, $2 trillion dollars. Uh, wiped off the value of global stocks in the first 24 hours after the June 23rd verdict. Uh, forecasts left, right and centre for economic contraction of one kind or other. The econo Economist Intelligence Unit saying that 1.5% growth this year will be now replaced by 1% contraction next year and that the economy will be 6% smaller in 2020 than otherwise it would have been. So a huge economic impact. And then the shape of our country. Uh, the, one of the very first people to speak after the vote on, the, on June 23rd was the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, who announced that it would be highly likely that Scotland would face a repeat of the 2014 referendum because, as she put it, Scotland uh, had voted to remain and would not be dragged out of the European Union against its will. And again, the polling, uh, I know we, no, nobody's going to trust an opinion poll ever again, but the reporting and evidence from Scotland suggests that this time the uh, support for independence will be greater than it was last time. And therefore, the prospect of Scotland breaking out the United Kingdom is real. So whichever way you look at it, the politics, the economics, the very shape of our country uh, seems to be changing. Uh, Douglas Carswell, I'm sure, will tell me that it, I haven't failed to say that if it's changing for the better, that bright, sunlit uplands and a future awaits us, and we will hear that, uh, that case made, I'm sure. Let me say something about the uh, format of how we're going to do it. We're going to have a conversation, the uh, six of us, uh, the five people here who can uh, offer expert guidance and opinion. I'll be moderating that. At different points in that conversation, I'm going to try to bring in thoughts and questions from you when they are very specifically on the point we're on. So if we're talking about, say, Article 50, something which nobody knew about two weeks ago, but we're all now experts, if, um, I, if you really have an intervention on that point and that point alone, we'll bring you in. But otherwise, we'll save that for the second half uh, of the evening when we will absolutely open it up in, in uh, our time-honored Intelligence Squared style with questions and contributions and and bringing them back to our speakers here. So I'm going to introduce our panel in a moment, but I thought it would be first useful for them and all of you if we got a sense of the room, as it were, and I'm going to ask you 
the kind of opinion poll that's more reliable, which is, as you, if you like, a, a late exit poll, uh, which is how you voted. Uh, if you did have a vote on June the 23rd, how did you vote? And I'm going to ask those people who voted remain to raise their right hand if they would. <laughs> okay, I don't think we, we don't need to call for the card vote. I think we get a broad sense. Those people who voted leave, please raise your right hand. Smaller group. Now, what I'd like to see, if possible, is I'm now going to talk about the concept of buyer's remorse, which a lot of people have been talking about. Of those who voted remain, please raise your hand if you now regret your vote and would vote the other way if you could. <laughs> so I think that's none. And of those who raised their hand for leave, anybody who's changed their mind and who now, to coin a phrase, regrets it. So we... I thought, oh, I thought I saw the beginnings of a hand, but maybe not. Okay. Um, so overwhelmingly, this room is made up of people who voted Remain. That is not that surprising given the demographics of this referendum. And I think it's fair to say, I, I don't want to be held to it, but I have a feeling this borough voted in the high 70s or mid 70s for Remain. But I, I don't want to, uh, I don't have the figures to hand, but there were boroughs in London that did vote in those sort of numbers, so it's not a huge surprise. Let's get on with our um, panel and introduce them. I've referred to him already with that very uh, widely shared tweet today. He is a former Conservative Member of Parliament, but of course in 2014 defected to UKIP, becoming that party's first uh, Member of Parliament, and of course was a key player both in the Vote Leave campaign but also in making the argument over the years for British exit from the European Union. A warm welcome please to Douglas Carswell. <laughs> He's joined by the Labour MP for Leicester West who was a very active campaigner on the other side for Remain. She also, of course, was a leadership candidate for her party in 2015, uh, losing to Jeremy Corbyn in that election, uh, but famously had a good uh, and, I think, mutually respectful relationship with him, which has managed to weather recent events, but very important in arguing that Labour needed to reconnect again with some of the voters who, I think it's fair to say, did end up voting leave. So a welcome, please, for Liz Kendall. To prove that here at Intelligence Squared we're not insular and introverted in our debate because those were criticisms uh, hurled at both sides, actually, and in fact at the debate itself during the referendum campaign. Uh, our next speaker is a frequent contributor to the German press as well as writing abroad, a leading expert on the European Union's foreign and uh, security policy, as well as the foreign affairs of his own country in Germany, a senior fellow and head of the European Council on Foreign Relations in Berlin. Please welcome Josef Janning. <laughs> the Economist described this panellist as a man for all policy crises. It is true that governments of every stripe have turned to him uh, to do some deep thinking on big policy problems. He wrote, between debt and the devil, money, credit, and fixing global finance, 
He's obviously thought deeply as well about pensions, heading up a big review of that. He now chairs the Institute for New Economic Thinking, having previously chaired the Financial Services Authority. A welcome, please, for Lord Adair Turner. And I am going to cast our final speaker, sometimes in the role of umpire and referee, to arbitrate some of the partisan points uh, uh, that will be heard as a, from his perch as Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College here in London and Director of UK in a Changing Europe, which the title deliberately gives away nothing because it's a non-partisan initiative that doesn't take sides but instead seeks to uh, research the relationship between the UK and the European Union. I suspect he's going to be a very busy man in the coming months and years. A welcome flea, please for Anand Menon. So that's our lineup. Um, we're going to get first right, right into it with a discussion. But I'm going to try, I don't make any uh, guarantees about once it becomes a Q&A and opens up. There, I think a lot of people are going to want to refight the battle that concluded on June 23rd. But in this first part of the discussion, I'm going to try as much as I can to steer our panellists away from refighting that war and instead to focus on, as our title suggests, uh, Brexit, what next? Uh, and so let's begin with you, Douglas Carswell. The accusation has been made that you obviously did a brilliant job of getting persuading 52% of the country to vote leave, but have left hanging a little bit what leave means and what the plan is now that we've voted to do that. And Boris Johnson, who was obviously a figurehead for vote leave, wrote a column today in which he said, it's the government's fault. Camp David Cameron and his government should have come up with a plan for what they opposed and didn't want to do. Um, so the question to you, Douglas Carswell, is you've won the referendum. What's your plan? Where's your plan? Anyone wanting to know what comes next, I would recommend they read the 1,200-page document produced by Matthew Elliott and his team called Change or Go. And it set out very clearly, in a great level of detail, what would happen if we remained in the EU with David Cameron's New Deal, or what would happen if we voted to leave. When people say, we have no idea what's going to come next, uh, it, it's perhaps because maybe... So far, some of the broadcasters and others haven't yet focused on some very clearly thought-through ideas as to what Go looks like. Now, it, it, it could be the case that um, Boris didn't read the 1,200-page document, and I'd, I'd be willing to wager money that he hadn't. Um, I, I'm a little bit nervous about Oliver Letwin being put in charge of the Cabinet Office uh, unit, not because he wouldn't read the 1,200-page document, but because he has a tendency to, I think, overcomplicate things. But it's simply not the case that some of us have only been thinking about these things for a week. Uh, in January this year, I met with senior officials from the Foreign Office and discussed at some length, some detail, about at what stage it would be legally necessary to uh, invoke Article 50. Um, a lot of thought has gone into this. But if I could just say one thing, look, I've spent 20 years campaigning for Britain to leave the European Union. But I would be the first to recognize the narrowness of the mandate the other week. 48% is a very sizable minority. It's harder to get a, a, a larger minority. It is a very significant minority. And I would be the first to say that what we need to do 
is we need to take on board some of the legitimate concerns that Remainers expressed during the campaign. Now, you're going to get some Remainers who, who, who are going to be in, in complete denial and, and, and won't, won't, won't want to accept the verdict of the people. But I think most Remainers are decent, patriotic, reasonable people, and we need a new consensus on the EU. I've spent the past two decades arguing about the EU. I don't want to spend the next two decades arguing about it. We need a new consensus that recognizes, yes, we're going to leave, but there are legitimate things and points of view and links that we need to retain, and I think we can do it in a spirit of common sense, uh, conciliation and reconciliation. And I think uh, if there's goodwill on both sides, we, we can do this. We can change our status, we can leave the European Union, but we can do it in a way that brings uh, more than 52% of the people with us. Thank you. The, 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 what was partly, be, just to follow up that, what was partly behind my question is on something as profound as, for example, whether Britain should remain in the single market. Michael Gove said, no, we could walk away from the single market. Boris Johnson said, yes, absolutely, we must stay in the single market. And those two people were the public I, I, faces not, of... Not, with respect, I'm, I'm not sure where, where Boris said that. Maybe he did. Um, but to be very clear, we want to leave the single market. That has been a, a very clear point put in black and white in a number of documents. I'm very happy to share those with you. The reason why there's been extra kerfuffle over this is because some people imagine, some broadcasters, indeed some politicians I've discovered imagine, that if you're not in the single market, somehow you can't sell to the single market. That is demonstrable and palpable nonsense. It is perfectly possible to not be in the single market in the sense that we would not be subject to the jurisdiction of the single market, but we would be free to sell to the single market. Given that most British companies don't export to the single market. I think it's good and sensible and reasonable that you should only have to comply with single market rules when selling to the single market. And that's perfectly feasible and straightforward set of arrangements to negotiate and to put into place. All right, well, we'll, we'll pursue some of that, and perhaps with the data owner and others later. Let's just um, pick up that point that um, Douglas Carswell just made there about the 48%, and it's a substantial number. Uh, Liz Kendall, Labour campaign for Remain, and, and you did yourself... What's your advice now to people who did vote Remain? Should they, as Douglas just suggested, do their patriotic duty and try and make this thing work? Or should they actually, perhaps also out of motives of patriotism, do their very best to somehow prevent or delay this thing happening because they think it's bad for the country? What should Remainers do now? I understand why uh, all of us as part of the 48% feel very strongly that uh, people have been lied to about what Brexit really means and are deeply concerned that there isn't a plan for Brexit. We simply do not know what it will look like and I think there is a huge responsibility on the Labour Party to quickly resolve our internal trauma so that we can deal with the issues that matter to the country. And I believe that is holding the government to account for its actions, because if the Brexit plan is left to the views of 150,000 Tory party members, it will be a huge problem for the country, but also to deal with the underlying causes of the Leave vote. And I believe that is too many parts of our country feel left out and left behind in our globalised economy. And there was an excellent piece yesterday in The Observer by Nick Pearce, who said, rightly I think, that the, and this was his phrase, the drumbeat for a Britain with you know, low, a low tax, 
deregulated, shrunken state Britain is going to increase. And it is the people who voted for leave in some of our poorer areas who will pay the price with further cuts to their public services and tax credits. Uh, the Labour Party has an historic mission to speak for those people and set out an alternative on the economy and issues like migration, which will actually deliver improvements for people's lives. In the current state of flux within politics, I would not rule anything out. We cannot ignore the votes of people who voted leave. That would be a huge mistake. But I believe things may change over time as people begin to see the reality of what Brexit means for our industries, for public services and the future of the welfare state. And Labour needs to resolve our problems quickly and effectively so we can focus on those issues from now on. So does not ignoring the vote mean implementing and voting in Parliament for whatever resolution comes or bill comes to take Britain out of the European Union? Or is there a way to say, yes, we've heard you, but we're not going to do it, and we're not going to vote in Parliament for it, because that's where it could, the battle goes now. Well, whether or not there is a vote in Parliament over Article 50, you know, there, is, there, there are disputes of whether that is nece necessary in terms of the Constitution. Uh, but I believe things are in flux and may continue to change as the reality of what leave means uh, is discussed and debated amongst the public. And we must hold the government to account for that because I don't agree with Douglas that it's clear what Brexit means on the single market, on freedom of movement, what it means for the city and financial services or our industrial heartlands. And that is what we must focus on. OK, and we'll let Douglas come in shortly. But just one quick thing. Your colleague, David Lammy, he's a London MP, he said there should be a second referendum because so many people who voted didn't understand all the issues. They were misled about the £350 million and other things. There should be a second referendum. Just in a nutshell on that, should there be? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule anything out because we do not know what leave package we are voting for. And I think, you know, we need to continue this debate with the public and not allow it simply to be done amongst 150,000 members of the Conservative Party. Thank you. Um, so, so, Yosef, Yanning, I mean, you've... you've well, you've been watching this, and I want to hear something from you, perhaps, about how Europeans reacted to this vote. But also, there have been these initial statements from, from Berlin and from Paris that seemed to suggest there was going to be a very hard line uh, that Britain would be presented with, that, you know, you heard uh, Jean-Claude you know, Juncker saying, the European Commission president saying, you voted for it, kind of, there's the door. You know, they met, 27 of them, without Britain, as if, and get, get it over with quickly, is that, going, is that just an opening position, just a bit of positioning, or is actually the, position, the, the reaction of Europe that we're seeing now going to hold? Well, I think there are, is obviously a good degree of frustration uh, among actors uh, who would have liked to see a, a different outcome. Um, I think that the, um, the, the perception in a number of the member states and governments is somewhat different. In the country I come from, in Germany, um, I think we are still amazed with this outcome uh, because I think you, you have to see that the Germans have a fascination for the United Kingdom. We love the Brits. And maybe we now have to understand that we, we love them for things that make them not very good Europeans because we love them because they are so 
the way they are, you know. Uh, here's Thomas Kielinger in the room, who has written countless pieces on this, trying to explain the Britain and the British to the Germans. You mean you love us because we're so difficult? Yes. We're, in a way, you know, you, you are eccentric and you are hip and you are cool at the same time. But, you know, what, what amazes the Germans and what somehow irritates them is that obviously you don't love us. No, not you don't love us enough to want to stay. You know? Because I think most Germans don't think about uh, them being in Europe because it may add 0.3% to our GDP. It actually does, I believe. But the important thing is that we believe that we are actually uh, uh, stronger together. That we count in this world with what we want to achieve only if we do it together. And so I think that's what, what uh, a good part of the German elite and the German public doesn't get, that somebody voluntarily says, I don't want to have impact. You know? And I don't want to have impact with these guys on the continent together. I think this is what we're uh, digesting still. But some of the politicians here, not Douglas Carswell, whose position is, quite, uh, is admirably consistent, but some politicians here say... They do so much trade with us, don't worry, they're going to bend over backwards to do an amazing deal. Slightly channeling Donald Trump now. Amazing deal. Um, didn't mean to do that. They're going to uh, go to great lengths to do a very good deal with Britain because they, they, you, the Europeans, will want to do that. And don't worry, we'll get all the access to the single market we want on all the terms we like, and we won't have to accept free movement of people because part of the verdict for leave seems to have been driven by reservations or worries about immigration. So that's, the, you know, Boris Johnson famously said his policy on cake was pro-eating it and pro-having it. And d d your impression is, of European capitals, will they give us this kind of deal that some politicians here think you're ready to give us? No, they won't. But uh, it is not that they will... Uh, they are out to kind of torture and punish the Brits. No? From a German point of view, we have every interest to keep uh, uh, a good trade agreement with the United Kingdom and also to keep the UK inside the single market. Because for a company like BMW builds minis in the UK, it is much more attractive to have that production facility part of the single market because that means that they can freely transport and uh, ship it and sell it everywhere. You know? and which, is, which is not just free trade, but which is free trade plus. And so, you know, you would see from countries like the Scandinavians, the Dutch, the Germans, that they would want a deal with the UK that says, okay, if you want to leave, you leave, but uh, we welcome you to join the single market on the conditions of accepting the four freedoms. Oh, you're absolutely free to do this. And, and you will see these governments working tirelessly to convince the Brits that actually such a deal is in their interest. So, not that we're going to reenact or enact the negotiations here on stage, but Douglas, Carlswell, what you just heard there, could, I, how would that fit with what was in your 1,200-page plan that I, you didn't I, tell us I've about? yet to meet one of the architects of the Vote Leave campaign who wants us to be in the single market. Again and again and again, we're debating at cross-purposes. People are accusing us of having positions we do not have. We do not want to be in the single market. We want access to the single market... And at the risk of reiterating the debates that, I'm, I'm sorry, you might not like it, but the majority of the country uh, agreed with, uh, it is possible to 
not be in the single market, but to have access to the single market. Like whom, for example? Give us a place that does it. Today, non-EU Iceland and non-EU Turkey and all the countries in between have tariff-free access. You, you, you just um, interrupted me, uh, Josef, by talking about South Korea. In, indeed, the European Union conducted a free trade agreement with South Korea and Colombia. No one suggested we needed to merge our parliaments with those of Seoul or Bogota. It's perfectly possible for the EU to negotiate with us a free trade uh, market access agreement that does not involve uh, the obligations that would come if we were in the single market. That is perfectly feasible and possible and straightforward. Let's just hear your reaction. But you're not getting single market investments. You're not getting the investments that will come to you because you're part of the single market. If you can you live may not without like it, that, Joseph, but right. it's doable. Yeah. You may not think it's the best, but it is doable. And I suggest it's preferable to what we have <laughs> okay. today. Okay, let's bring in Adair Turner, because I think you're going to want to come in on that. Um, but I also want to just ask you about the, the business community, if you like, and people involved in the economy. They, they, you know, Michael Gove said that people had heard enough in this country from experts and didn't want to hear them anymore. But most people, in most business leaders, most economists, uh, most economic agencies around the world did say this would be very bad for the British economy, and these forecasts and projections have continued in that vein, including from the governor of the Bank of England. What do you think, you know, crudely, business has an obligation to do now? Should it make this thing work one way or another and bite its lip if it voted remain? Or, almost similar to the question I put to Liz Kendall about opposition, or if it really thinks it's so bad, should it be doing its best to somehow prevent this thing happening despite the votes of 52% of the population? Well, I think although Douglas says there was a plan, this 1,200-word, no, 1,200-page uh, <laughs> document, I think, I think I can be pretty confident... No, I have not read it, and my point is, Douglas, I am pretty confident that on the 52% who voted for leave, the number who had read this 1,200... <laughs> ..page document, I'm willing to bet would be about a tenth of 1%, of those who had heard about £350 million a week so and we've Turkish done the access. No, look, the, the, the point is, Douglas, this is a serious point. You may serious. have put it, it out there, not. and it may be perfectly legitimate for you to say it was your you desire, so. it was your desire to make that argument. But the fact is that is not what determined the result of the vote. It is also the case that although that document may be there, it does not now determine what is going to occur, because what is going to occur depends also on what the Europeans want to do. And our fundamental economic problem at the moment is we do not know and we cannot know where we are going to be in three or four years' time. There will be people in Europe saying to us, why do you not have a deal like Norway? But that would come with free movement of people, which I suspect will be unacceptable to whoever is the Prime Minister. But there will then be people in Europe who are saying, well, if you don't want Norway, you are going to get what's called WTO access, most favoured nation status, and let's be clear, that involves tariffs on industrial goods. 
That involves tariffs on cars exported from Britain, which will then be to the disadvantage of workers in the British car industry. Now, what you want, and what I'm sure your great 1,200-page document says, is that we are going to persuade Europe to have some sort of free trade agreement, which is not just WTO, most favoured nation status, and is not Norway. But there is no certainty that we will get that. And that is why people legitimately say there is no plan. It's all very well to have a plan that assumes that everybody else just agrees with your plan, but that's not a real plan in the real world of politics. Thank you very much. I'm very aware, I'm, I'm aware incidentally of the complexion both of the audience and the panel, so Douglas is going to get probably more time than other individuals because he needs to be able to defend his case. So well, why don't you come back to on that point? Uh, quite often when you hear therapists talking about people going through the grieving process, they say that there's uh, the anger stage, the denial stage, the depression stage, the bargaining stage, and finally the acceptance stage. Most people in this country voted to leave the EU and I think some of the Remainers are still at the anger and denial stage. There is a very clear set of ideas as to what we do next. The good Lord may not like them, but I think there are perfectly good arguments in that document, which I'd be happy to send you, to explain what it is we can do next. Douglas, can I say that this argument about bereavement is one of the most patronising statements I have ever heard? But who's patronising to the 52%? No. Look, he's patronising 52%. About this 52%. We have a democracy where you accept that there is a process. You accept that that means that when it goes against you, you do not start refusing to pay your taxes. You do not have a right to violent rather than unpeaceful demonstrations. But on the day after a Labour government is elected... Tory party activists and MPs decide the very next day that their main aim in life is to make sure that at least within five years that is reversed. And the idea that they should go into Parliament and vote with the Labour government because that is accepting the will of the people is absurd. I completely accept, as a given fact, that we are outcome? going to leave okay. the European Union. That's good of you to... I am completely to accept hear. that we are going to leave... Well, when you say it's good that you accept, that well, supplies that I wasn't going Liz to. Liz I've always suggested that we to. shouldn't accept it. What? Liz seems to suggest that we shouldn't accept Look, it. Look, what I am suggesting is that if it occurred over the next year that there was a turn of events by which on February the 21st next year we had a referendum that went 52 to 48% the other way, that would be equally legitimate as the one that went 52 to 48%. So you want that second way. referendum? Uh, look... I think there is almost no chance of that occurring. But to suggest that it's somehow illegitimate and undemocratic for some people to want that suggests that you don't deeply... really understand democracy. Having been... Okay, let me bring... Come back and then I'll bring in other people. Commons, my Lord, because I've been elected there, not because I've been appointed there. I and, do and, understand and you, democracy. And you always, okay, you always voted for the government in power, whichever it was, did you? No, that I, was your interpretation I, of I democracy. I got to Parliament through the ballot box, my Lord, not through appointment. OK, let me bring in other people. Let me bring in other people. You'll have a chance to come back. Anand Menon, you've been waiting very patiently to have your say. Why don't you come in on... The... We'll, we'll, you'll, you'll be able to carry it on. Anand. Well, there's, there's two things I want to say. One is about the plan, which does exist. I've, I've read it. But 
it does startle me that the government that called this referendum didn't have a plan for both outcomes. It really does. Because we weren't electing a government. We were mandating our government to do something. And you would have thought, or I would have thought, that somewhere in the recesses of Whitehall, they would have started thinking about this. And I'm starting to wonder whether they did. Second thing is about the single market. And Douglas is very, very clear about this, but sometimes I think the language is a bit confusing. It's not about tariffs, okay? I mean, tariffs globally are quite low. I mean, they go up to about 10% for cars, but basically manufacturers can cope with tariffs. The single market is about being able to trade in Lisbon the way you can trade in Liverpool. And for an economy like ours, which is a services economy, that's fundamental. You don't just stick a Dyson on a ship, wave goodbye, and you've sold it. If you want to sell legal services, if you want to sell university education, if you want to sell any sort of service, what you generally need to do is set up shop in the country you're doing it. And that is what's at stake with the single market. We'll obviously be able to trade with them. The European Union doesn't stop people trading with it. But the big question for me is whether we will have that full unrestricted access to other people's markets that we get now. And so what, I mean, I'm going to mustn't just keep bringing everything back to you, Douglas, but since you're the advocate for leave here, it's bound to happen. On that point, is your view that we will get trading arrangements as good as the ones we had on June the 22nd, or we won't, but it's a price worth paying for the sovereignty that we have regained? I, I think we will get preferable arrangements, and, and let me tell you Preferable why. to what we had before? Preferable to what we have today, and let me explain yeah. why. At the moment, every company and every business has to comply with single market rules whether or not you're selling to the single market. Because of that, it means that there tends to be a, a more bureaucratic, cumbersome burden on business. If you only have to comply with single market rules when selling to the single market, at a stroke you reduce that obligation. Quite often regulations are brought in by people who don't necessarily understand the impact of what it is they're regulating. If you only have to comply with single market rules when selling to the single market, I think not only would you be more competitive when selling to the EU, you would be more competitive globally. And the proof of this is that there are 27 other industrialised countries who are not in the single market who have managed to increase their exports to the single market from outside faster than we have from within. Norway, not that I agree with the Norway model, but Norway's arrangements with the EU are preferable to ours. They only have to comply with 9.1% of all regulations since 2010. They sell four and a half times more per head to the single market from outside the EU than we manage from within. It is perfectly possible to get better arrangements than we have today. Okay, Liz, Kendall, you wanted to come in. Um, I did. Um, yeah. You know, we are rightly debating all these issues tonight, but the vast majority of people who voted leave didn't vote around the single market. They voted because they are concerned, worried, angry about immigration, and they believed we should spend £350 million a week on the NHS. This was not the debate that people were having, and uh, we, mustn't lose, we mustn't lose sight of that. And, you know, I agree with Adair that a second referendum isn't likely, but look... If the vision for our country uh, as the only way to attract investment here because we are out of the single market is through an even lower tax, even more deregulated, smaller welfare state vision of the country, I would find that very hard, if not impossible, to support. 
because I don't believe that's right for the people I came into politics to serve, and I don't believe it's the way that we will create more jobs and investment uh, in our public services in future. So, you know, keeping our options open here and understanding that you know, people didn't believe the experts, but when they see the impact on jobs and public services in their area, people's minds can be changed. So that is why I think a second referendum may not be likely, but I certainly believe that um, whoever is the next leader of the Conservative Party will be setting out a very different vision from the country than, that we have now. And it is right in a democracy that the public are included in that decision. Um, thank you. I, let me just... I'm going to open it up in a, in a very few minutes. I just wanted to ask you, following up what you just said, where your democratic obligation lies. And we saw that exchange between a member of parliament and a member of the House of Lords, a member of the House of Commons, a member of the House of Lords. Uh, where does your democratic obligation lie? Should you defer to what was, most people have agreed is the largest democratic mandate in British history, 17-plus million votes, 52%, or when it comes before, and we could get into when Article 50, if it has to go through Parliament or not, that's an argument. Some people say it does, some say it doesn't. But when legislation comes through Parliament, as a Member of Parliament, would you be obliged to, if you can, block the move, whatever legal moves are necessary to get us out of the European Union? Or, because you were elected by Leicester West, the people of Leicester West, or you must you listen out. to the 52% people out. of the country? So what's your democratic obligation? I need to see what is the Brexit plan, because whatever Douglas says, we don't have that clearly defined exactly for the reason Adair said, which is we don't know if that's what uh, Europe will give us. My constituents, God bless Leicester as a whole, we voted 70,000 to 67,000 uh, to remain, but my constituents voted out because of their concerns about immigration, and they believed the lies of the Leave campaign that we'd suddenly have all this money to put into the NHS the responsibility is on the government to show what the plan is, and then I will take my decision. Josef Janning, Europe or the European Union has a bit of a bad record of hearing democratic verdicts and then coming back with a second question to because they didn't like the answer to the first one. Uh, that happened in the Irish case and the Danish case and other places. Do you pick up various European leaders saying, well, we know the British have done this on June the 23rd, we'll wait, we'll see, we'll let some time pass and we'll make sure that we have find a way around this, rather than thinking we're going to have to heed that democratic verdict. Well, the sense around European governments is that uh, we'd rather like to see action. We'd rather like to see movement on the decision. Uh, because it's not good for Europe to be hanging in there. It's not good for Europe that you have talk about the EU 27, whereas we still are at 28. And to, to have in front of us the perspective of kind of an empty chair policy of the United Kingdom in this interim period, that at a time when the European Union is facing challenges uh, to its ability to respond to crisis. And, and you were nodding at that. Well, I, mean, I think it's quite clear now, after a brief wobble in Berlin when there was talk of giving them time to reconsider, they want us out. They want this sorted out. The French and Italian stock markets have been massively badly hit by this and they're not willing to wait around. So I don't think this is very different to a treaty referendum where you, you know, stick a paragraph on the end and try again. This is about membership, and they, the other member states think they've given what they can See, give. See, I'm so surprised to hear that, because I would have thought, Josef, that you would have, been, you would have had people in Berlin or Paris... 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Heartened by what Liz Kendall was saying, which is... Give it time. You never know. Let's see how events play out. And maybe there's a way they don't leave. But you're saying you'd rather just get on with it and get them out. Well, I think you've got to say two things about this. Uh, I think, uh, first, particularly in Berlin, people are ready to give some time for the British to sort out this kind of post-Brexit atmosphere. But then there needs to be action. Uh, Berlin policymakers don't have an interest in having this limbo go on for years. You know, they want to know uh, where they're at. And when we are moving, I think you can rely on the interest of at least German policymakers to get to a deal that is fair because we want to be in a close relationship with the United Kingdom. Whether it is in or out, we'd rather have it in, but sure. since that the decision is a different one. Yeah? So I think the Germans do not really believe in the ability to turn this around because they don't see anyone who could be leading the UK to stay. Well, they're not the only ones who don't see anyone leading in the UK right now. Um, With all this talk of democracy, I think we've got to let the people uh, speak, and let's do that now. Um, If you have a particular point on anything you've heard so far or on something else, uh, I'm going to try... There's a hand up there, so... It's hard with the lights for me to see, but I know that I think that's a number three. So we'll hear from you in a minute. You've got somebody there at number two. And as you know, the Guardian journalist always lives up to his stereotype. I want a gender balance in these questions. I've got two men so far. Is there a woman there? Over here. Okay, but we don't have a microphone there, unfortunately. Oh, we do. So we're going to go for number one. So let's hear number three, first of all. Hello, good evening. Um, My name is Kevin O'Connor. I've been attending Intelligence Squared debates since I started uh, 12 or 14 years ago. Um, And I'm one of the 17.5 million idiots that voted to leave the European Union 
Um, I would remind everybody here that those few people that voted to leave it here tonight also have a voice and listen to the sneering condescension of people like Liz Truss and Lord Adair Turner uh, attacking those people who more often than not don't have a voice. I say this from the perspective of somebody who has a central London business which is successful and employs 300 people, 92% of which are foreign non-UK nationals. But I voted to leave because I believe there's more to life than just money, more to life than just pounds, shillings and pence and the ability to have a cheap gardener or a cheap plumber. And I applaud people like those who took a chance, like Nigel Farage, and I applaud people like Douglas Carswell who are prepared to stand up for their principles and I say the United Kingdom is not a busted flush and I would leave it to the people of the United Kingdom to make their way forward. Okay. Can I, can I just... Thank you. Don't, don't take the microphone away. I just want to ask you something. You, you, you mentioned that you employ citizens of the European Union. You don't have to stand up again. But you, you employ citizens. Where do you stand on this issue which is flared up today, the policy difference between Theresa May on the one hand Andrea Leadsom on the other, Theresa May saying that whether or not EU citizens can stay, if they're already here, can stay, will be a bargaining chip in negotiations with our uh, former European partners, and then Andrea Leadsom saying no, they should automatically have their rights guaranteed and not be a bargaining chip. Where do you stand on that? I think it's an absolute disgrace that any person who's come here and worked hard and paid their taxes for the last 10 years or so should be threatened with expulsion. That is absolutely outrageous. And I say that as a first-generation... Thank I, you. I say that as a first-generation immigrant. My son, my father was Irish, for whatever that counts for. Uh, and I've had to apologise to the 92% of my staff, and I mean actually apologise to them, yeah. for the threats that a lot of them have experienced during this week. And there's nobody on the Leave side who endorses that. Thank you. So, um, let's go to whoever is at microphone number two. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think I've, I've heard what Mr. Carswell has said about... Uh, sorry, I do I need to introduce myself? My no, no, it's fine. Okay, great, yeah. perfect. Um, <laughs> um, about leaving the single market. doesn't want to be part of the single market, which I think means that the plan is to enter into a bilateral investment treaty with the EU. I don't know. I hope um, Mr. Carswell can respond on that. Okay. I happen to be an international arbitration lawyer, and uh, in bilateral investment treaties, there are arbitration clauses... Uh, where there is a dispute under those treaties, which means that a cabal of international arbitrators decide whether or not national legislation is expropriating uh, the investment of another, of, of another state. Now, <clears throat> I don't see how that's great for open justice, because arbitrations are private. And I, as I understood some of the debates... The European Court of Justice was criticised for not being open, not being transparent. But for the lay person listening to you, your worry is that we might now be subject to unelected bureaucrats, as it were, even if we leave the EU. There'll be these unelected people making these big decisions. Well, they'll I... be great lawyers, but yeah. they will be... <laughs> yes, it's going to be good, good for business for you, but I see the point you're making. Well, I, I, yeah. uh, and and I, just, I just yeah. wanted Mr Carswell to explain, good. in the 1,200-page documents... Which we're all going to be reading this evening. Is this... Is, is there going to be trade through bilateral investment treaty? Thank you. And, ha and what's the answer for open justice? Good. I think we got that. Let's hear the person who is standing by position number one. Yeah. Uh, this question is for Douglas Carswell. So you told us that there is a plan, and I haven't read the plan, but I was curious if you could tell us more about what's in the plan, and specifically, what is your top three action points on your to-do list now that we have decided to leave? 
Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Let's see if we can get one more in while we've got it. Um, we've got somebody there, number four. Yeah, you, we'll try and get you the next round. Yes. Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. No, sorry. Uh, Mr. Carswell. Hello, oh, they're sorry. all for Douglas. Let's have some yes. questions for no, I'm very sorry. Well. One, yeah. one, one more question. Um, uh, my name is Tim, and I was a, I was a Remain supporter. Um, and thank you very much for your, um, your point earlier about the bereavement process. I'm slowly getting there. Hopefully, I'll get to the acceptance stage. But I'm a bit more worried about one of my elderly relatives who um, voted out because she believed they would be able to deport uh, British Muslims and that one uh, hospital a week would be um, built with the, uh, with the money we'd save. I tried to reason with her, and it didn't work. I was wondering if you could write her a letter explaining that will not be the case. Thank you. Uh, we'll take another round in a minute. Just, just on this point, I mean, I know you said, Douglas, about the 1,200-page document, but do you accept what seems to be a sort of sense in this room, which is that many more people were aware, for example, of the £350 million figure on the side of the bus and everywhere else. And then it, it was odd that the leader of your party, former leader of your party, waited till the morning after the vote to say, well, that was a mistake and I never liked that figure. You, you and he and others were not running around saying that £350 million figure is bogus, it's a fake, you're not going to get that money. I don't, I, maybe you were saying that, but I didn't hear you saying that. Let's be clear, the uh, former leader of my current party was not part of the Vote Leave official campaign. Uh, he did a number of things during the campaign that I regard as disgraceful, and I said so at the time, not least those posters. Um, I will lumber up to explain the uh, reason why uh, we, I think, quite legitimately said that every week we hand over control of £350 million. Every year, we make a net contribution of 19.1 billion to the EU. If you divide that figure by 52, the number of weeks in the year, you come up with a figure actually slightly higher than 350 million. I think it's 367 million. Um, it is quite legitimate for us to make the point that that gross contribution hands over to the EU institutions money that we are better off spending on our own priorities. And I think, you know, if we want to rerun the referendum tonight in our own little... Um, uh, 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 discussion, very happy to do that. But quite often I've heard people suggesting that the reason why people voted the way they did was because of some sort of false consciousness on the part of the people. And uh, again, I think this is really quite disturbingly con condescending. I looked at an opinion poll recently which suggested actually the reason why most leavers voted leave was not contrary to what the nativists on the right and the remainers on the left claim immigration. It was the issue about democracy, about control. And I think it diminishes and, and, and is contemptuous towards leavers to belittle them as somehow insular nativists. It's simply not true. It's not the case. Why don't we, Liz, and it's Liz Kendall, not Liz Trust. Why don't you um, come back on that very quickly and then I'm going to get a dear yes, turn on definitely this. We Kendall also do want to hear Douglas's three action points, so we're not um, going to get away with that. That is not it. my experience, Douglas. I was Labour's EU champion in the East Midlands. And whilst people did talk about taking back control, the primary issue of concern was immigration. And I think what is really important in this debate is that we think long and hard about the root causes of this vote. We have seen this huge divide between some of our fantastic metropolitan cities and our market towns, coastal towns uh, and uh, counties which have felt left out and left behind in our globalised economy. They have not seen 
the benefits of growth in their pay packets. They have not seen it in their public services for many years, even before the crash. And the challenge for progressives, and I would argue for progressives across Europe, is twofold. Firstly, how we make that economy work for everybody, and secondly, how we deal with the very real concerns about migration. I do not believe that leaving the EU is going to solve the issue around immigration. In a globalised economy, people will live, work, study, travel far more than they've done in the past. And actually, although I know the immediate reaction from many across Europe has been to say, you know, uh, as we've already discussed, let's deal with this quickly, get Britain out, get some stability. There are some voices, including Manuel Valls, who made a superb speech at the National Assembly last week, which I'd urge you to read, where he said, Brexit is not just a British problem, it is a European problem, and Europe faces a choice. Either it continues to, you know, it, it doesn't reform, people run away from it, and the EU project is consigned to history, or Europe bites the bullet and reforms the way it, its economy works and to deal with the issue of immigration. That is the big issue that we have got to address. Thank I you. would like to see Labour leading that debate, not just in this country, but across Europe. And I think some people in Europe, in our progressive sister parties, get this, and I hope we can build an okay. alliance that delivers for the future. Thank you. We're going to get Douglas Carswell's... <laughs> Thank you. We're going, to get, we're going to get Douglas Carswell's top three action points, the 1,200 pages in bite-sized form. We're going to hear, hear that. Anand Menon wants to come in. I want to hear a dare turn on the economy. Anand. The gentleman, I can't see for the lights, who used the phrase sneering condescension, because I think he's spot on. Uh, I think the tone that has been used about people who voted the wrong way uh, has been appalling. And I think, furthermore, is it, this, this referendum has been really interesting for me in terms of learning about this country. On the 24th of June, my Facebook uh, feed suffered from this massive sense of schizophrenia. All the people I know in the southeast, you know, friends and family, were acting as if there'd been a death in the family. And all the people who live where I went to school in West Yorkshire were having street parties. And it was just bizarre to behold. And I think when we talk about sneering co uh, condescension, we need to talk not just about the way people who voted the wrong way are being treated now, but the fact that in those communities up north, that's how they think they've been treated for 25 years. And it wasn't just that they didn't believe the experts. We, had, we, we held events all over the north. It was that they said, we don't care 2% of your GDP. That's fine. Our lives are always hard, but this is our chance. And the one thing I would say about this referendum that I don't think people are saying enough is it was a fantastic democratic moment. We had an enormous turnout, and we had turnouts, you know, 75% in Hartlepool. People who don't vote. They registered, and they went out, and they voted. And above and beyond the EU question, which to my mind is actually secondary in this, the big question for our politicians now is, do we make them feel included going forward? I think that's or what Ken was very much saying. And what, what, what inadvertently, perhaps, there, haven't you actually effectively rebutted what Douglas Carswell was saying, which was this vote was about sovereignty? You're saying it was actually used in a, in a really powerful and important way, but as a chance, finally, to protest about the status quo going about 30 years. It wasn't an abstract judgment on the European Union that was being delivered from what you're saying. It was actually just a chance to kind of give, give this howl of protest and rage of what's happened the last 30 years. Well, let me say two things. One, there is no good polling evidence yet. We'll get it in the next couple of weeks. It's not there yet. Mine is a purely anecdotal story from spending 
a couple of weeks up in Newcastle, Wakefield, Leeds, places like that before the referendum and hearing what people said. And yes, immigration was an issue, but there was also this kind of stick it to the man attitude about it. Which is not an argument about sovereignty. Right, well, not, no, that wasn't no. the overriding thing no. in those people's minds. No. Adair Turner. Look, I, I want to comment in particular on the immigration issue and also on what Anand has said, where I do believe that the elites across the world have completely ignored the legitimate concerns of many people and indeed accused them of a form of false, of false consciousness. Let me begin by, however, I don't want to go too much in this, but, you know, Douglas, the 350 million was simply untrue. It was just untrue. It's 350 million at a gross level per week if we did not have the Thatcher rebate. It's about 220 million, low 200s, after the Thatcher rebate. And then if you work out what we get back in various subsidies, it's somewhere about 160, 170. Now, 160 and 170 is a big amount of money, and you could have just focused on that. But 350, you know, to be absolutely blunt, was, was a lie. I mean, it was a lie. Now, I don't really want to go through that, but I, I think it is quite important for the future nature of our debates to realise that if you sure. said, you know, you're going to give somebody... 3.5% return on an investment and the truth of a 1.5%, you would be banned by the FCA. But I really don't want to go into that. Now, the crucial thing is on immigration... I'd hate to see you when you do want to get into it. On immigration... <laughs> Can you imagine? On immigration, right. I do think immigration was a big issue and I think it was a completely legitimate issue. And I spent years convinced that immigration would be a big issue because I think it is the case that when you have sudden and large flows of immigration, they are bound to have an adverse effect on many people on low wages who have new competitors. They are bound to have effects on schools and uh, hospitals unless you invest, which we failed to do. I was much to the surprise of my many liberal friends, and I, you know, I know I'm a member of the metropolitan liberal elite, that's whom I am, but a lot of them were upset when I was not only a signatory, but a moving force behind the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee report in 2008, where I said, along with Nigel Lawson, it's almost the only time in my life I've agreed with Nigel Lawson, that there was a problem here. And I think the experts also made this problem worse by telling people who were worried about immigration, you're idiots, you don't understand the economic theory. The economic theory tells you you've got nothing to worry about. I do think it was a big issue, and I think a lot of people, when they said they wanted to take control, that was what they were talking about. Okay. But that was an absolutely legitimate issue, and as Liz says, we've got to find some way to address this either by some mechanism, and it may be one of the benefits of being out that we can control this better, or by the investments needed to deal with those immigration flows. Thank you. On that very specific thing, to you, Yosef Yanning, freedom of movement, big issue obviously in Britain, but not only Britain. There are people who are unhappy about immigration in Germany and in France and in other places in the European Union. Could it be that this Brexit vote triggers a rethink of this fundamental 
one of the four pillars, four freedoms, you said, and actually, rather than Britain having to fit in with free movement, the European Union changes the policy on free movement so Britain and other countries like it could feel more comfortable with it. Well, first, Adair has a good point there. Um, whenever you have large, large flows of migrants, societies, particular segments of societies react very strongly. Uh, so there needs to be a managed uh, migration. I think there's consensus on that. Second point is uh, other governments, including the German one, have pointed out repeatedly to the British government that there are ways inside the EU and under the existing treaties to find uh, modes to deal with the immigration or but with Cameron, the social... But David Cameron asked for this emergency break and they said no. Well, he asked for a very specific break that he wanted. He didn't ask for, let's find a common solution. Now, I think that, that would have been uh, probably the better alternative. Uh, okay. in, in also in Berlin, a lot of people are very mindful of the fact that uh, uh, London was making fun of the Germans when Germany used all the derogation periods with Eastern enlargement and saying how stupid you are in Germany that uh, migration is a great opportunity. And so, you know, this, yeah. there are still echoes of that in, in Berlin. So people say, if you really wanted to solve the problem, we would have found ways inside the European Union to actually deal effectively with the issue. Thank you. I want to get a whole other round. I know lots of hands are up, so we're going to get those. But Douglas, we have to hear back from you on these three action points. Yeah. The potted executive summary of the 1,200 pages. Tell us what was in your plan and what are the three things you're going to do now. If I was in charge, the first thing I would do is provide uh, reassurance, if necessary, through a motion in the House of Commons that's statutory binding, a reassurance to the uh, two and a half, three million EU nationals living in the UK. I think it's disgraceful that uh, some of the candidates in the Conservative leadership contest have put a question mark over their status in this country. Now, I think the reason why they have done that is a deliberate attempt to clear and prepare the ground for uh, Brexit light. By bigging up the issue of whether or not they're entitled to stay here, it, it allows them to turn around and say, look, in order to get this uh, uh, vital thing that we all agree we need, we had to make concessions on X, Y, and Z. And frankly, I think that is absolutely disgraceful. Vote Leave has been absolutely consistent. There are not many times when I sign letters jointly with Yvette Cooper, but on, on Sunday I did uh, jointly sign a letter with Yvette Cooper. We need to provide reassurance. Any EU national currently living in this country has an absolute right to be here. So that's item one. Number two, we need quickly to reorientate our trade relations with the rest of the world. Already 11 states around the world have approached us and indicated that they would like to have new trade deals. And we need to take advantage of that very quickly. And I think... Uh, we would have a free trade agreement with India if it wasn't for various vested interests. We would have a free trade agreement with Australia if it wasn't for Spanish tomato farmers putting a spanner in the works. There are trade agreements that we will inherit by virtue of being in the EU, 51, but we can build on those and put in place things that are better with the parts of the world that are growing, and I think that needs to be done and done urgently. And the third thing, you know, what in essence is leaving the EU? The fundamental point about leaving the EU is that uh, no Euro court or legislature has jurisdiction in this country. We, we uh, decide on the basis of our sovereign right what we do. But that doesn't mean that we don't agree to cooperate where we want to cooperate. So if we take back control of, of, of that, if we end that constitutional arrangement where our courts and our legislatures are subservient to those in the EU, then I, I think we can actually 
pretty rapidly discover that, yep, we can still have close links with the EU from outside of it, um, and we're not cutting ourselves off from anyone. It was a very specialist question over here, but about bilateral investment treaties, and the, uh, he was worried about a cabal of lawyers deciding these things. It, Just... it, a bilateral investment uh, deal is certainly uh, a possibility. It is perfectly possible, you'll know as an arbitration lawyer, for non-EU countries to have arbitration deals and treaties with the EU. You don't need to be in the EU to have arbitration deals. Um, absolutely, uh, that, that's very much part of the package. All right. Let's take another round. As I've said, I'm quite keen to make sure we do hear a mixture of male and female voices. So let's start with microphone number three over there. And we'll, then we'll go to number one here with the lady here. Thank yeah. you. My name's Nicholas Steen. Um, on the 17th of May, um, Farage said that if the vote was 48%, 52%, there would be unfinished business and that the Remain would need 66% for it to be a clear outcome. And I just wanted to point that out when the Leave um, voters are, are saying that the Remain people are being a bit unreasonable in continuing the debate. And um, I just would sure. mention to Douglas um, Coswell that if he's so confident, you know, how, why would you go forward when you know that people have been lied to. People you say you represent were lied to. I, I can't understand. If you think that you've got such strong support, now the lies have, are on the table, why don't you ask people what they think? But my real point oh, is yeah. that nobody, nobody in any of this debate has got to the root, not just of the problems, the divide in our country, but the problems of immigration. Nobody's talking about global inequality and, and how we help countries so that people want to stay with their families and developing their own countries and their own economies and not coming here where they're okay. on their own. Thank and you. I want to comment on that, please. Okay, thank you. Microphone number, position number two there, and then we'll bring the man forward or, and we'll get from you. Yeah, number two. Um, similar point, actually. My background is in change management and... Um, There'll be a lot of call for your services. Exactly. I think. Uh, and, I you know, it's, it's fairly basic principle, actually. If you've got a community split in two, um, you, that's not enough. It's not enough to say, get over it, get on with it. The people have spoken. People have to feel that they've been brought together and can go forward together. And I think a little bit less sneering condescension on both sides, to be quite honest. Do you with think you. it would have been better for a referendum like this if, in advance, not now that we know the result, but if in advance we'd have said you have to have, say, a two thirds majority for it to pass? I think that we should have uh, had to have had for this is we're talking about a huge yeah. structural change here. Yeah. I think we should have had an agreed. Um, maybe 75% vote, okay. maybe 60-40 minimum. Oh, 75% turnout, yeah. What I keep saying is I wouldn't okay. have been happy if it had been 52-48 the other way because stickability is key. You need to be able to have huge change. It has to stick, okay. and it won't stick. Thank you. Number four over there. And then if you could bring the microphone over to this man here who's been waiting a long time. Yeah, the man with the blue shirt. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, this is a question for Mr Janning. Um, and I wondered what your thoughts are on the implications for the rest of Europe and whether this will lead to closer integration, whether um, you're more likely to see other countries leave and whether you're concerned about um, potential rise in nationalism. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's a uh, good question. We'll bring that back. Yeah, over here, number two. Yeah. 
<coughs> Roger Kendrick. Um, this 5248 thing, what I'd like to say is the government and the whole establishment and the whole of the international community put their weight behind remaining in the EU, and the people of this country said no. Now, if the government had... Uh, campaign the other way. There's no doubt it would have been 60 or 65% in favour of leave. And the reason is because we have been told lies. And the big lie is that we benefit from being in the European Union. And let me explain why. No, please, Briefly. these just some facts. In, in 2000, we had a current account deficit with the EU of 8 billion. And that was all right. Last year, it was 106 billion just under 6% of our GDP. And that has grown over the last 15 years, and it has reduced our GDP by 6%. And the reason for it is that we don't have a single market in services. After 43 years, we do not have a single market in services because the rest of Europe doesn't want us to get access to the, the things that we're really good at. And the second reason is we can't compete with Germany because Germany's got an undervalued euro, and we can't compete with them anywhere. And the third reason is is that the euro and the German-imposed austerity uh, uh, policy has totally destroyed the economies in southern Europe and they can't afford to buy anything. Okay. So I put it to you, we will be better off out. Okay. I need to remind you that the argument's over and you did win. Um, so we don't, we don't, you don't need to make the argument all over again. Number three, over there, microphone number three. And this, this will be it for now. We're going to bring it back and then we'll have another round. Yeah. Hi, this is a question for Josef Janning. And I think the one thing that unites all of us, or many of us in this room and across the country and also across Europe, is a demand for a reformed EU. What is the response from the EU on that demand for the reform? Good. Thank you. Let's, Josef Janning, so two questions for you, and I think you can probably do them in one go. What will be the effect of this? Some people have talked about contagion that it will spread and more people will want to leave. And Nigel Farage, the morning after the results, said it will be Frexit and Nexit, and even as he was heading for the exit himself. Um, just, just tell us what you think about that. Will it spread? Or will the European Union nations close, circle the wagons and actually integrate more closely with each other? Or as this last question has said, will there be reform? Mm -hmm. Well, there's, there's not a great de degree of uh, consensus among leaders or among member states in the current EU. I think one problem uh, that the EU cannot, or the Europeans in the EU cannot escape is what Anand uh, mentioned about the, the, the sense of a lost inclusiveness of our societies. And I think that, that will plague European politics in one way or the other. And regardless of where you stand politically, you will have to address that. And that is not easily addressed by another grand plan or another founding of Europe. Um, uh, or a, Schumann, uh, a new Schumann declaration that we will have in March of next year. But, and I think that's uh, increasingly understood by policymakers, this Europe will have to deliver. It will have to deliver a number of results. Um, and the was the message of the German finance minister from this weekend. The, the, the sooner it will start to deliver and the more pragmatic it will be in delivery, the better it will be. Now, that still may not solve the inclusiveness uh, problem. That's, a, I think, a longer-term challenge. On the nationalism and contagion effect, I think one of the uh, uh, unintended collaterals of the Brexit vote is 
that uh, a lot of people on the continent have, are getting second thoughts. I think Gerd Wilders uh, uh, who in the Netherlands who initially applauded the result now uh, is less certain because the average Dutch doesn't want to see his or her country go through the same process that you are going through here now with that kind of uncertainty and that kind of, of uh, a change in your leadership. You mean we're going to become a model of how not to do it? Well, I, no, I, I think it, what, what, uh, what the lesson that people take away from this is that, that uh, you know, a direct democracy is a fine thing, but is not necessarily uh, a very uh, thought-through, long-term response to rather comprehensive challenges. Yeah. No? Uh, and to the second question on EU reform, I don't think that there now is at 27 uh, a tendency to say, oh, fine, the Brits now are out. Now we can do all the things <laughs> like financial market regulation that we never could do. Maybe a little bit of that uh, could be easier. But I think a couple of uh, important things like cooperating more on security and defense in the EU could become easier. But I don't see that we are entering a phase of high-flying new treaty reforms or another round of a constitutional debate. The next phase will be rather driven by intergovernmental cooperation because the way the EU is today, uh, it is rather fragmented, uh, it is rather weak to institutionally evolve, it will most likely evolve through a stronger and visible cooperation of okay. member states and they will have to demonstrate the benefit of their cooperation by delivery. Now, and when they deliver, it will be fine, and when not, it won't be the answer. Adair Turner, you were asked about, or the panel was asked about the fact that the whole establishment put its weight behind uh, Remain. People like you, people like me, really, everybody, uh, you know, who are coming from that perspective, and yet leave still one. And the questioner said it would have been even bigger for Remain if they hadn't. So that just shows you. Uh, how big the sort of settled will of the country was for this thing? Well, I don't think we can be certain of that. I mean, if, and I think it's a reasonable interpretation, part of what went on was revolt against the establishment, you can't logically follow from that that if the establishment had said leave, everybody would have voted leave. Um, that's sort of slightly the wrong way round in terms of logic. I, I, don't, think, I don't think it would necessarily have made a, a big difference. I actually think that some of what the establishment did was a bit counterproductive. As a matter of fact, you won't find my name on any economist list saying there was going to be a complete and utter disaster or other things like that because I thought there was an element of overstating the case. Uh, I thought in particular that George Osborne's punishment budget was one of the most stupid a uh, political moves I'd ever seen, uh, as, uh, as well as absolutely economically absurd, because the idea that post-Brexit would, one would raise taxes and cut expenditure is absolutely not what those much-derided experts would suggest, and indeed absolutely clearly is not now what is going to occur. So I think there was an element of overstatement of the case which worried me. Now... I still think that the most likely judgment, and these things are never more than most likely judgments now, is that the economy is going to slow down significantly. 
Uh, I think the models which suggest that, and you noted the Economic Intelligence Unit, that maybe we were previously looking at 1.5% growth next year and it may end up at zero. I think that's probably as good as we get. And why is that the case? That's the case because when people are uncertain and when they're lacking confidence, thousands, hundreds of thousands of individual consumers and individual businesses make very slightly different decisions about how much they're going to spend or whether they're going to employ another person and the aggregation of all that together slows the economy down. So I think that is going to occur. I think the crucial thing is where we end up in three years' time. And I personally believe that if we do end up just out of default because we can't work out a better solution, simply ending up with what's called the WTO solution, where there isn't either a Norway-type access to the single market or some sort of free trade association, but just what you get as the default case in WTO, my best judgment is that if that does occur, a slowdown could turn into quite a deep recession. But I think even to get the FTA deal will require some compromise, because it always does, on some of the things that the Leave campaign wanted. So that's my best shot at where we are now economically. I think we're going to get a significant slowdown next year. Every sign that I say, well, I, I think it is already occurring. Um, and the crucial thing is to try to make it as small as possible. And I think getting as best a possible deal, which will require some compromise, is what the focus should now be on. Thank you. Good. For Liz Kendall, a question there about migration that we have, a huge debate about migration, but the question is said, we very rarely talk about the root of the yeah. phenomenon, which is why people want to leave, and global inequality that, uh, and bad conditions in some of those developing countries that makes people want to leave their own families and travel thousands of miles. I think that's spot on. We, we know that the pressures on migration in Europe are predominantly happening from uh, areas torn by conflict and inequality. And the only way we will, I mean, it's extremely difficult and complex, but we have to deal with the problems that we're seeing in Syria and Iraq and, and places like that. But also within the EU, and I just want to come back again to the point I've been trying to make about the root causes of the problems that we are seeing and the parts of Europe as well as Britain that feel left out and left behind. Now, as a, as a progressive social democrat, I believe that tax and transfer will always be a, an important part of our toolkit, but alone they will not be enough. We need to see far greater investment in infrastructure and skills. We need a huge push on regional economic strategies. I would like to see the devolution agenda go much further uh, so that it doesn't just benefit our metropolitan cities but our peripheral economies. We need to see a huge shift uh, uh, towards the Midlands and the North and the Southwest. Okay. And I believe there are things the government could be doing now. I mean, good that Osborne is no longer doing his punishment budget, 
But actually, there are steps we can and should be taking now to boost our regional economies and put the long-term infrastructure uh, and investment in place. Okay. And I find it astonishing that this government's response to the biggest crisis we've faced since World War II is setting up an EU uh, unit in the Cabinet Office. If we were in government, we would be taking these longer-term decisions about reshaping our economy so it works for the many and not the few. But the question was actually what about what's going on in the, in the big wide world beyond Britain, about why people are leaving the countries they're leaving. And that's where I started. And, you know, this is the great tragedy okay. that it is only by working with our, uh, uh, you know, colleagues across Europe that we will actually be able to put pressure on the uh, surrounding areas of these conflict zones to actually make a deal work. Uh, and I hope that we continue to do that. We're in our closing minutes. One thing I want to put to you, Anna, and it didn't come up, but I don't want to leave people to leave tonight without talking about this. <coughs> there have been these uh, reports of attacks, um, graffiti, of abuse in the streets, etc., a 500% spike in uh, alleged hate crimes since the vote. And some people have said that's to do with the atmosphere. People saying, pack your bags, get out. You know about the graffiti on the Polish Cultural Centre in West London. Do you see any connection between these phenomena? Or do you think it's unfair that people are suggesting this might somehow be related to the vote on June 23rd? It seems to me obvious there is a connection. I mean, parts of the movement in favour of leaving, not the parts Douglas was associated with, uh, use some pretty inflammatory language and some pretty inflammatory images. And what saddens me most of all now is, as we've mentioned before, they're in the Conservative Party leadership race. We are playing chicken with people's lives. Uh, it strikes me it would be perfectly simple for the government to say we guarantee the rights of EU citizens living in this country. But do you think if they did that, that would somehow stop at a stroke these sorts of episodes that have been reported and have left some people pretty alarmed? Well, in time of crisis, I'd like to see our politicians set an example and lead. And one way of doing this would be to say, this is unacceptable, these people are here, they are welcome here, and attacks upon them will be prosecuted through the law. And this has got nothing to do with a perfectly legitimate debate about whether we should be in the EU or not. Good. <clears throat> Thank you. I fear we're coming to the close. Douglas, I think you're going to get the last word. People were saying that, not, you know, I know you're not accountable at all for what Nigel Farage says, heaven forbid. But the point was made that he had said in advance 52-48 wouldn't be enough, the question would remain open. And somebody who works in managing change in organisations says, you don't want to do it if it's more or less 50-50. You really want to take people with you. The phrase that was used about Scotland, big constitutional change there to have the Scottish Parliament was it must reflect the settled will of the Scottish people. That seemed to be interpreted as a big majority, 60, 65, that sort of number. Do you feel that leaving on the basis of this 52-48 is truly the settled will of the British people, or do you think in a way we should have looked for a different way of doing this and a bigger number? N Nicola began by quoting something that Nigel Farage had said. Well, you know, Nigel also said that he was going to resign and then unresigned. He conceded defeat and then unconceded defeat. He said he was going to win in Thanet South. So, you know, maybe we should take some of these things with a large dose of salt. But, you know... It, it's, You're it's a man really, unleashed it's, now, it's, aren't it's you, really, Douglas? It's you can really, say whatever you like now. It's, I always have been. It's really quite important. <laughs> At the last general election, I was the only representative of my party which got 3.9 million votes. And I was invited a week afterwards to go on a demonstration against the unfairness of the electoral system. And you know what? I didn't do it because I felt it was wrong soon after a highly charged general election to somehow take to the street 
to protest against the unfairness of the electoral system. I, I think we need to be incredibly careful that we respect democracy. Now, the lady made a really good point about the need to be conciliatory. I have tried, goodness knows I have tried to be conciliatory. I began this evening by talking about the need to create a new consensus. I got jeered in the House of Commons the other day when I talked about the need to reach out to the 48%. You know, I'm going to keep trying, though, because I believe that actually the majority of the British people want to leave. I think if it had been a less uh, establishment Remain-led campaign, we would have won by an even larger margin. If we hadn't have had any association whatsoever with some of the angry nativism that we saw, we would have won 60-40. Uh, I just point out this. George Osborne, during the campaign, clearly lined up a whole group of grandees to try to frighten people to vote a certain way. And interestingly, Schäuber today, the German finance minister, came out and said, those things he said about us not having access to the single market and everything, he only said that because George asked him. Uh, I think clearly the establishment tried to get the outcome they wanted and they're not going to get it. We will leave. We will try to do it in a sensible, reasonable, conciliatory way. And I hope many people who uh, uh, voted Remain will recognise that actually the majority view is that we leave. Thank you. We have managed to... We have managed to come to the end of our allotted time without either resorting to blows or talking that much about Article 50, which was a surprise to me. I thought that was going to be a big one. But um, we have had, I think, a very uh, spirited and very valuable conversation on Brexit. What next? Uh, it only remains, I think, for you to join me in thanking our very hard-working and informative panellists, Douglas Carswell, Liz Kendall, Joseph Yanning, Adair Turner, and Anand Menon. Thank you all very much. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.